What is up, everybody? How we doing tonight? Good to see you guys. I can kind of see you. Poor Cole, I think he couldn't see you during announcements when you guys were uh, not sitting down. So uh, that had to be so jarring for him. Cole, I hope you're doing all right, man. Thanks for the best announcements of the year for sure, though. Um, how was break, y'all? Did you have a good time? Yeah. Okay. You miss Iowa City? We missed you too. How many of you guys went on like a, a snowboarding trip or like a skiing trip? Yeah. Who was that? Anybody? Anybody go out to Colorado? A few of you. Yeah. Some people from Colorado. That's good. Um, I didn't go on a snowboarding trip if you're wondering. No, don't, don't celebrate. I'm not too happy about it. Um, the reason I didn't go, since you were asking, um, I used to go. Okay, let's just be clear. I used to go every year. I had a good buddies, uh, family. They would, they would take me out. Uh, but I hit my head too many times. Anybody else hit their head a lot while they do fun stuff? I just can't help it, right? Which means you're going hard, having a lot of fun. But I hit my head one too many times, and I was always getting kind of dinged up snowboarding, but this one particular time I was going, and I'm not good enough to do anything super cool. Anybody else not that cool, right? Okay, so I wasn't, I don't know what was happening, if I'm being honest, but I guess I caught my back edge, I whipped down onto the ground, and next thing you know, I am having a seizure, right? And it's a very confusing situation because I'm just kind of in and out of consciousness. When I am awake, I'm like throwing up. And next thing you know, I am strapped to a sled getting dragged down the mountain with like the rescue team. Um, I don't remember much else than that part of the story. The people who were with me, it was much more traumatic for them. They thought I died. They said I turned purple and like stopped moving and it freaked them out completely. And I have not, believe it or not, have not been on a snowboarding trip since then. Um, now Nolan Hicks gets to enjoy my snowboard and take it to Colorado for me. I'm not bitter about that, that I sold my snowboard to one of you, but um, I, I sound positive about it, right? Like I'm kind of chipper, like it's all good. No, I'm ticked off about it, man. I'm jealous that you guys got to go do that over this uh, Christmas break. It makes me mad. Like, do you know how many trips I've missed because of that? Stupid injury. Do you know how much fun I've missed out on? How much time I feel like I've wasted sitting inside in the flatlands of Iowa? There's no way, like, is that really God's will for my life? Like, like whose master plan was that? Isn't it just like God to take away something that you have grown to love? You ever felt that? The moment you're falling in love with something or someone, it all falls apart. But yours wasn't like a stupid little snowboarding trip. That's not what you're thinking about, right? What do you look back on your life and you say, why did I lose that? Like something so painful and monumental in your life that you lost it and you were tempted to feel or literally said, isn't it just like God? to take away the thing that I love the most. There's no doubt you've had stuff happen to you. There's no doubt that you've been tempted to think that. Tonight, guys, we're going to go to a story that plunges us right into the heart of that tension, that angst. Genesis 22 is where it's at. 
And we're going to read about a man, a dude you maybe you've heard of, and he had every right to feel this angst. We're going to meet a man, but we're also going to be confronted, guys, with a God, the God who you might come in here tonight having a problem with. And what I hope, guys, is that when we see this God, when you see this God, there's just one thing I want you to understand when you're confronted with the God of the Bible tonight. I just want you to understand that no matter what has happened in your life, no matter all the questions that you have and the why God this and why God that, there is one thing very, very clear from tonight's text. And it's that God's will for your life is to burn with love for him. And all the circumstances and all the confusion and all the what ifs and whys, our big idea for tonight coming out of Genesis 22 is that God's will for your life is for you to burn with love for him. So I'm going to go to Genesis 22. I'm just going to read the first couple verses here. And I think they're going to be plenty for us to stomach. Okay, so this is Genesis 22, just one and two. They say this. The verses should be on the screen behind me. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Salt Company, welcome to one of the most uncomfortable passages in the entire Bible. Glad you came tonight. Good. Me too. I'm glad you're here. This is what's going on. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Abraham is a pretty big name. Father of the faith, right? It's a good nickname to have. Abraham was a nobody that God decided he would make into a somebody. God found him a wandering nomad and spoke some serious identity and some serious, uh, seriously big plans into his life. God was promising this guy who was about 70 years old, so the ripe age of 70, he was promising him that he would bless him. God is promising this guy. And, and he would bless him so much so, get this, that he would pour so much blessing that would overflow to the entire world that the entire world would be blessed by this one man, Abraham. How would that happen? God said he would make a great nation out of him. That there would be a people group, a nation coming out of him that would be so vast. And even in all of that vastness, there would be one person from his line who would be the Messiah, the savior of the world, the one that uh, from Genesis three all the way to the the one that this whole story is about, he was gonna come through the line of Abraham, this 70 year old nobody, but here was the problem with God's promise. Abraham and his wife, who was about the same age as him, they had no kids. You can't make a great nation if you can't seem to start a family, especially when you're super old. But God was true to his word. And after about 30 years of waiting, when Abraham was about a hundred years old, God came through with his promise. Isn't that crazy? These old, old people by God's power gave birth to a son, the one that they've been waiting for. The wait was over. Abraham's blessing came to fruition. He loved this gift more than any gift he had ever received from his God before. Then boom, Genesis 22. God says, the gift that I gave you, give him back. Offer him up as a burnt offering. Sacrifice your only son. Now, this is confusing, I know. 
It's confusing for Abraham too, I'm sure. This God was supposed to be different from all the other gods, right? Like child sacrifice, that was pretty normal around where he was, but this God was supposed to be different, right? Like this God was supposed to be true to his word. And if he promised Abraham this blessing, why in the world would he go back on his word and take him from him? It's confusing, man. It's weird. In the first sentence here, though, in verse one, we get a bit of a clue. Why, he would, why, why would God do this? We see the word test. He was testing Abraham. What was it a test of? Well, it was a test of Abraham's love. And not love for his son. Like we see very clearly that Isaac was somebody that Abraham, his father, loved. But it was a test of his love for God. Like had Abraham's love for Isaac, this gift from God, had it gone too far? Had it become more, this love? Had it become deeper than his love for God? Was God kicked off the throne of Abraham's heart for his son? Well, it's hard to say at this point, but that's exactly what God is here to find out. But why? Why does God want to test Abraham like that? Well, the Bible has a word for this, right? When something becomes our greatest object of love, right? When the epicenter of your heart doesn't belong to the God of the universe, it belongs to some created thing, the Bible calls that an idol. You ever heard that word before, idol? Like American idol? Like the word idol uh, scared me a lot as a kid growing up at church. I just imagine like this little like, like wooden or stone thing with like an evil face on it, right? Like that, like that people would bow down to and worship. And that was the case a lot, maybe not with a face on it all the time, but like, like people would bow down and worship like the statues, right? Like idols. Well, actually, more normally, especially us, our day and age, the idols we deal with, they're actually really, really good gifts from God. Does that sound confusing or surprising to anybody? Like these idols, these things that we're tempted to worship instead of worshiping God are actually, and usually, the things that are really, really good and near and dear to our heart. This is what Augustine, St. Augustine, you guys may have heard, this is what he calls disordered loves. When what's first, supposed to be first in your heart becomes second, third, 20th, that's a disordered love. And it's what Augustine says is the essence of all sin. The essence of our rebellion against God is our disordered loves. Idolatry, it's wicked, it's subtle, and it's threatening our lives, guys. But God... In this story, we see very clearly God will not have that. He will not share his glory with another. The first point of tonight, guys, is that God, he's not afraid to loosen your grip on what you love. He's not afraid to. God is not afraid. We see here, he's not afraid to loosen your grip on what you love. And let me explain kind of the danger of idolatry, this stuff, uh, misordered love. I want to explain it like this. Have you ever heard the phrase? I, I really think this is a phrase. If I'm making this up, please forgive me. Um, like, don't kill the pet. Any, please, one person. <laughs> Shoot. So I made up this phrase. It's called don't kill the pet, right? <laughs> Dang it. I have, I'm not making it up. And it sounds really offensive and scary. It is. As a father of a cat, it is a terrible phrase. Uh, but this is what the idea is in a picture. Like you give a little kid a puppy for Christmas, right? And the kid is so enthralled, so excited that the kid takes that puppy and squeezes that puppy and loves that puppy until that puppy can't breathe anymore. 
But in comes the mother, in comes the father, right? And loosens the grip, saving the puppy and saving the kid from unbelievable tragic sorrow. Don't kill the pet. It is possible, according to that phrase that is very well known, obviously, you can love something to death. That's the picture. But in reality, guys, we have a lot of love to give. We have a lot of worship to give. You think, well, I'm not a very romantic person or I'm not a very religious person. That's okay. Like, film yourself like watching your favorite football team. You have a lot of love. You have a lot of worship to give in your life. But maybe that thing that you're worshiping actually was not supposed to be able to withstand your love. Like maybe the most loving thing the parent could do is loosen the grip on the kid and the puppy. And maybe the most loving thing that God could do for you and for me is to loosen our grip on the things we love too much. Even the good things. What are those things? So like, what could it be? Like, do you think of when I'm talking about this, do you think that you might have any idols in your life? It's a fair question. Do you have any little gods in your life that you're giving your worship to? Well, what would happen if you did? Like, what happens when you love blank more than God? Well, what if it's like a relationship, right? Like a significant other or like a hope for a boyfriend or girlfriend or a future spouse or something like that. Is it possible to love somebody too much? That sounds very romantic. That will make a hit on the Hallmark channel, but... The moment, guys, listen to me, the moment that you need somebody to fulfill you and need them to be first place in your life, need them to adore you, need them to ultimately save you, you have made them into a little God and you will very quickly realize now or at the end of your life or the end of their life that that is not what they were meant to be for you. Mark Aaron says this sometimes, like the most evil thing you could ever say to somebody as you're standing up on the altar, marrying them, is make me happy. You will let them down, no matter how good of a relationship it is. You are a sinner. You have your faults. They'll let you down. And one day or another, death will be the ultimate end, right? That's not a good God. Relationships are a great gift, but I don't think they're made to withstand the full brunt of your love. What about your careers? Is it possible that you offer so much of your, your life to your major and your studies and your career one day and your career advancement one day? Is it possible even, guys, just humor me with that. Is it possible that you could offer so much of your life to your job that it crushes you? Like you don't have to look that far guys in this world or maybe in our families to, to find a dad who in the name of um, self-sacrifice or in the name of provision has completely neglected their family for the sake of their career. That's a misordered love. You can love a job to death. Well, what about something else? Like what about your image? Okay. Maybe it's like literally your physical image. Maybe it's how you want others to perceive you. Like if there's like a middle school kid up here and they were confessing to everybody that they had been spending like hours and hours in front of the mirror every single day before school, trying to cover up all their acne and put up all their makeup and then reapply their makeup and do their hair and all this stuff. And you ask them why and they're like, well, I just like want to look good for other 13 year olds. 
Like from our perspective, we would be able to tell that kid like, no, like it's not worth the cost, right? Like your obsession with your image is going to destroy you. And the approval you're even getting, the love you're even receiving back is not worth giving your life for. But then we look at ourselves and how do we do the same things? Maybe it's not ours in front of the mirror. Maybe it is, I don't know. But we change who we are. We sacrifice ourselves so that other people will like us. Our image is a terrible God and it will crush us as well. The sacrifice is not worth the fickle reward. But my point, guys, in all this, and there's a million other possible idols we could talk about, so many more. Salt Company could be one, guys. Ministry, your connection group, the thing that you actually love more than God, it could be any of that stuff, any, any good gift. But, but my point really is this, and this is something from I got from Tim Keller's book on idols called Counterfeit Gods. I definitely recommend you read it. Um, but idolatry is just building your life on a faulty foundation. It's entrusting your life to build the house of your life on a faulty foundation. Guys, don't build your life on relationships, jobs, your image, or anything else. Build your life on something that can't let you down. Is that wishful thinking or do you think that's actually possible? You know what I'm going to say next, right? It makes sense. You've been, to, you've been to church for a year. Build your life on God, right? That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, don't clap yet because you're saying, wait, hold up. Build your life on God. Okay. I f- forgot for a second that we're in Genesis 22. Let's go back to that. Are you telling me that I should entrust my life to the will of a God who would order this man to kill his son? Are you serious? Is that actually real? Have you forgotten what we just read? Well, I'm not so sure about that. Are you telling me that the best thing I can do for my life is to love a God, to, like I said, burn with passion for this God, who if I do as well, he might ask me to offer up my son or whatever is dearest to me. Is that the point of the story? Well, I don't know. Let's keep reading, okay? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the rest of this passage, just verse three through 14. And I'm gonna read it kind of slowly and I want you to really take this in. Like if you're, if you're sleeping, now's a great time to wake up. This is one of the most beautiful stories where this horrific beginning ends gloriously. And this this is what happens starting in verse three, guys. So Abraham, he got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took with him two of his young men and his son, Isaac. He split the wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham, he looked up and he saw the place in the distance, the place where he was going to sacrifice his son. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I, we're going to go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on his son, Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire, he took the knife And the two of them, they walked on together. Then Isaac, he spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, 
but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about Abraham, he built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and he placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. He said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. I want us to kind of stop and back up, slow down for a second. Think about some of that stuff that we just read and kind of put ourselves in that story. What must these people been thinking? What, what is going through Abraham's his mind and his soul? Like imagine you're walking up for days and finally over the crest, you see that mountain, the place where God is leading you to offer up your son. You've been walking as slow as you possibly can. You see it. Imagine just laying that wood that you just chopped and you put it on your son so he can carry it up to his own death. What you must be feeling and thinking as the father. Imagine just the sound of Isaac's voice when he asks like, wait, where, where's the offering? Where's the sacrifice? Confusion in his voice. Imagine the binding of the ropes that the father tied tight as the son quietly sat there in submission. Probably with tears and terror in his eyes, but then imagine the relief, the heavenly relief of an angel crying out saying, Abraham, stop. Don't do that. The story has a happy ending though, doesn't it? Thank goodness. Like I read that again and again and I feel, I know how it's gonna end and I feel it every time. There's a happy ending. God provided a ram to be sacrificed in the son's place and all that faith that Abraham had, right? The father of the faith, all of that faith that he had, it was honored. Abraham was sure, right? That God would provide. He says, even like if worst case scenario, like, I do end up having to kill my son. God is going to bring him back to the, bring him back to the world with me. Like we're going to come back and we're going to, we're going to go home. Hebrews 11 confirms that. His faith that God would provide happened. But no need for resurrection even because Isaac was spared. Abraham's faith was celebrated. And end of story, right? Well, technically, yes. But... I don't know. If we're honest, there's still kind of one big problem that's lingering in the air that I think is hard for us to shake. 
if we've been listening up to this point, why would God actually ask Abraham to do this still? I can't get over that. Like what kind of God would still ask this to happen? It seems twisted. Are we just gonna kind of let God off the hook on this? Yes, I mean, there's a sense of relief that God didn't let the knife come down on the sun. Absolutely, we all kind of breathe easy when we read that, but it still gives me a bit of anxiety. Like, even if this is how it happened for Abraham, what if God asked me to do the same thing? What if I am afraid right now? I have this kind of idolatry anxiety. I'm paranoid that because I'm loving something too much, God is gonna destroy it or take it away from me. Man, I love my significant other so much. And does that mean that God is gonna ask me to give him up? I have great career aspirations. I'm studying hard and yeah, I love it. I wanna be a great doctor. That's a good thing, right? Is God gonna take that away from me? It's bringing with me a lot of fear. And guys, I gotta say, if you hear this story and you're asking the question, how could God do this? It's okay. That's okay to ask. In fact, maybe you should be asking that because if you're asking that, maybe now you are ready to hear really what is an inch deeper. What is this story actually pointing to? And I remember years and years ago hearing this passage read over me for the first time sitting in your chairs and uh, David Livingston, the salt director at the time, he, he shared this article, a part of an article from an author named Nancy Guthrie. And, and this is what it said. The name of the article is, How could God do that? Perhaps we're meant to feel a bit appalled. Perhaps it's not until we feel a sense of outrage over these seemingly unfair requests that we can be prepared to feel an appropriate sense of wonder when we begin to see what we're meant to see in these difficult to swallow scenarios. When we begin to see what God intends for us to see, Our outrage gives way to adoration, consternation gives way to worship, and horror melts into humility before a God who, get this, rather than asking the unthinkable of us, has done the unimaginable for us. Why would God ask Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice? Is God trying to teach us that we should be willing to sacrifice what is most precious to us? No. This story is not recorded to inspire sacrifice to God. Instead, it paints in vivid colors the sacrifice of God. The point of this story is not to convince you that you must be willing to sacrifice to God what is most precious to you, but rather to prepare you to take in the magnitude of the gift when you see that God was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him, his own beloved son, for you. Soul Company, this tonight, this story is not a warning that God might ask you to sacrifice everything. This is a picture that God was willing to sacrifice everything for you. It's not a story that tells you love God more than anything or else. Watch your back. It's a story about a God who loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. Isn't it just like God to see you and to see me with all of our misordered loves, throwing our worship to anyone and to everyone we shouldn't? And isn't it just like Jesus to be led up a mountain by his father, carrying the wood on his back to make it to the top, be bound to that wood, unable to move, 
but not be spared the blow of death. But instead to be the very lamb that was sacrificed in our place. Isn't it just like Jesus to do that? Guys, this sermon, this story is about a God who wants you to burn with love for him. That's his will for your life. And he's not afraid to loosen your grip on the things you love because God was not afraid to prove his love for you. He was not afraid to prove his love for you. Guys, we're created by God. We're created for God. Not to worship our own little fake gods. You know that thing you learned in elementary school, that really, really cliche little thing of like, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart and only God can fill it. You know what? That's really true. (laughs) I'm glad I learned that as a kid because it is as true tonight as it was back then. Your soul will be restless forever, searching, taking in, worshiping, filling yourself with every single thing that you possibly can, and none of it will satisfy until you find Jesus. These little gods, they're going to take, they're going to take, and they're going to take until we are dead. But this God, the God of the Bible, he gives, and he gives life to the fullest. But what does that look like? Like, what does a life burning with love for Jesus look like? Like, is it just singing louder and raising your hands more than other people here? Is it preaching on the street corners? Is it sharing the gospel with everybody on campus, knocking on every door and not wrestling until everybody knows the love that has found you? I don't know, maybe. Like, maybe it is just raw passion and you go crazy for Jesus and you're just electric and I really hope that's the case. But that's not all it looks like. That burning love, that's not all it looks like. Here's how we walk out of here tonight, guys. Worshiping Jesus, smashing our idols, and not just walking around constantly paranoid that we're loving other things too much. Here it is, it's Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, In view of the mercies of God that we see so clearly in Genesis 22, the Jesus who took our place on the cross, who died for our sins, out of his mercy and love for us, out of the view of that mercy, brothers and sisters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. There it is every day in the quiet, normal, mundane parts of life, we crawl up onto that altar of prayer and we offer ourselves to the Lord. We offer up our wills, our desires, our passions, and we say, your will be done. Our obedience is yours, Jesus. We die to ourselves and by God's unbelievable kindness. It's when we die to ourselves, we have found the truest life that we were made to find. Every single day, we go to the foot of the cross. We see the son of God who died in our place and our hearts, they melt with love. They burn with love. You want to reorient your loves? You love sports more than you love God? You love 
the idea of marriage more than you love God. You love the idea of being rich more than you love God. Here's the thing. You're not going to think your way to love God more. You need to go to the cross and have him change your heart. And good news, guys, is Jesus is alive. He didn't stay dead. He's here tonight, and he is in the business of reorienting your heart and your love tonight. Put your faith in him. Offer your Romans 12, one sacrifice of your life again tonight. And I'm telling you, when we go out of here, we are not gonna be paranoid about the idols. No, no, no. We are going to be the freest people that you could ever imagine. Free people who (laughs) are finally free to be the spouse that you want to be, right? Not needing anything from somebody else, not needing them to fulfill your life and being so in love that you love each other to death, but giving yourselves freely to them, serving them and enjoying it. It makes you the friend that you should be. Like you're, you're gonna stop looking at yourself and you're free to finally care about others. Who cares what other people think about you when you know what God thinks about you? He loves you like he loves his own son. Nobody wants to be friends with a self-obsessed narcissist, but someone who cares, I'll take all day. That's a free life of loving others if I have ever heard it. You are free to pursue that career and study hard and do a good job in your classes. You're free to provide and use your skills because you have nothing to prove. The gospel, this good news, it's not good advice. No, it's a proclamation of something that's already happened. God declares over you, son and daughter of God, you're mine. I love you. Build your life on that. The work of the cross is finished. And now you can get to work with joy and freedom. This is who we want to be, Salt. A people who have seen the love of Jesus clearly on display and responded the only way that we possibly could. Worship. Would we be a place of worship? Not just on Thursday nights or Sunday mornings but daily saying, here I am, Lord. Let me pray for us, guys. Father God, we have set out on an impossible mission tonight. I feel that. I feel, God, like I cannot, I know for a fact, I cannot change anybody's heart. I can't even change my own heart. How am I going to change somebody else's heart? I cannot move one person an inch closer in their affection for Jesus. I just can't do it. It's beyond my pay grade. I'm a terrible savior. (laughs) But praise be to God and Jesus Christ who has blessed us and has met us where we're at. Because God, you are here tonight changing hearts. God, we confess to you that our lives are all about us, all about what we want. We're worshiping everything that's not you. Our lives are driven by our flesh, our entertainment, our comfort, you name it. And God, tonight, I just pray that we would open up our hands and our hearts, that we would worship you so passionately, that our hearts would burn with love for you because you have set them on fire. Praise be to God. Change my life, Lord. Change our lives. Make Saul Company a place that is all about the glory of God and nothing else. Hear our worship, God. Hear our song and be pleased. We love you, Lord.